0: I'm David Brown and this is Business Wars. As our series on The Late Night Wars comes to a close, we are looking to the future, Gone are the days when millions would tune in like clockwork to catch an opening monologue. Now, late night's less about the time slot and more about the formula, and who can get their sketches to go viral online. Plus, there are more hosts and shows than ever before. But overall, the field is still dominated by straight white men. There's more diversity now in late night than even just ten years ago, but still, quite a long way to go. For more, we're talking with Meredith Blake. She is an entertainment reporter at the Los Angeles Times who covers television. We'll discuss how the genre of late night is staying relevant in the age of TikTok and Gen Z. All that's coming up next. If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta SkyMiles business Amex card. Buying that plane ticket for a business trip... And get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone, check. Because you're the chief excursion officer, it's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know terms apply. Visit go. Amex. You know business. Now, since you're a podcast listener, I'm sure you know all about how audio just does something to the imagination. So, I'm really excited to tell you about how Audible's brand new exclusive thrillers are brought to life with that kind of captivating sound design, the eerie soundscapes and dynamic performances. There's one that caught my eye. I should say it caught my ear. It's an Audible original called Sleeping Dogs Lie by Samantha Downing. It details the aftermath of a local businessman's murder in Marin County, California, a once sleepy suburb now part of the bustling Silicon Valley area. And as an Audible member, well, you get to keep one title a month from their entire catalog, including bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible now. Free for thirty days. Head on over to audible.com/bw or text bw to five hundred five hundred. That's audible.com/bw or text bw to five hundred five hundred, and try out Audible free for thirty days. Meredith Blake, welcome to Business Wars.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And, uh, well, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, The the television landscape, man, you think about how much it's gone through since the 1970s. I mean, you have streaming, of course, YouTube, and all kinds of other social media platforms. And I guess it raises the question for us now, what makes a late-night show a late-night show? I mean, and I suppose wrapped up in that question is what was a successful late night show uh, back then uh, well how does it compare with a successful late night show now
1: in the 70s or you know even in the 80s and early 90s there there was really only one late night show and that was the tonight show with johnny carson mm-hmm. and when he retired in 1992 it really set off a chain of events that's were still that still continued to unfold you know we had once he retired that instigated a late night war between Jay Leno and David Letterman on rival networks. Um, And then over the past 10 years, we've seen another changing of the guard in late night, and a real proliferation across a number of different networks, cable networks, streaming networks, a a whole new generation of hosts trying to sort of take over.
0: It's interesting, because yeah, there was so much bound up in the idea of Must see TV right now. You know, you had to be sitting there on your your couch. You had to be one of the 15 million tuning in or you kind of missed out. Of course, that's not the case. And yet the water cooler conversation, whatever happens the next day, that really seems to be what it's all about. That still is a big part of the success mix for late night.
1: It is. I guess now viewers have a built-in advantage that they can watch whatever people are talking about at the proverbial water cooler back at their desk when no one's looking. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. um, You don't have yeah. to be parked in front of the TV at 11.35 anymore. And, you know, it's given, I think, late night a really essential opportunity for growth at a time when a lot of TV audiences are contracting, but it's also complicated what it means to be to be in late night, and and it's, you know, means that you're getting smaller real-time audiences in general.
0: Yeah, I wonder if that has an effect on just how culturally relevant late night TV is. And by the way, since we are still talking about late night TV, are we talking about those programs normally scheduled to run in the Eastern time zones at or about 11.30 p.m.? (laughs)
1: We are to some extent. I mean, that has expanded. You know, it's we've got shows that air well into the night, shows that start after well after midnight. We've got some shows that start at 10 p.m. and then we have shows on streaming networks that don't really, you know, conform to any typical time slot that you consume on demand. You know, so it's 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 really become a lot slipperier in that in that regard.
0: Interesting, because I'm thinking of the late night hosts, right? These Mm -hmm. are the people who in a way are the inheritors of the mantle, you know, left by Carson. If you want to follow that down, which is something we've been sort of trying to dig deep into. And of course, Fallon comes to mind, Stephen Colbert, right? Uh, who else are we talking about? We're talking about Jimmy Kimmel, no doubt. we got certainly. Jimmy
1: Kimmel. You have Seth Meyers. You have kind of, you know, you have a bunch of sort of the next generation of The Daily Show, like um, Trevor Noah, who hosts The Daily Show. You have mm-hmm. John Oliver. You have Samantha B. So it's it's there's really kind of a lot of iterations of this next generation, I guess, is one way of putting it.
0: Very interesting. Is there a commonality to the voice or the sound, right? I mean, it sounds like at least one small dollop of Snark, if that's not uh, understating it. but i I think that's part of the sort of letterman uh, heritage, if 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 you will,
1: I think that's a fair way of putting it. i, I would I sort of look at it as. There are sort of descendants of of Jon Stewart because, you you know, you look at the late night landscape now and you have John Oliver, who, you know, wins the Emmy every year. You have Samantha Bee. You have um, Stephen Colbert, who's now hosting, who took over David Letterman's show, who, of course, started on The Daily Show. So they tend to have more politically charged humor. You know, they have a more of a strong kind of political viewpoint, especially the last four years of the Trump administration. And then you have another kind of even Seth Meyers, I would say, kind of put him in that category. He didn't come mm-hmm. from The Daily Show, but his humor is very tuned in to the daily news. And then on the other side of the spectrum, I would put someone like Jimmy Fallon, who's much less political, even James Corden. They're both very musically oriented. They do a lot of kind of stuff that's really tied to pop culture and is more fun and primed to be viral like that.
0: But I get the sense that politics, that, that that's an important part of uh, The late night conversation today, it's always been, I suppose, but perhaps I was trying to think if ever before politics has been such a part of what it means, what you have to have in a sense to retain your relevance in a time when you have such diversity and variety on the media landscape. In a sense, it's all about going viral and politics is one way to hit that main vein, I guess.
1: It is. It certainly is. And I think especially over the last four years, we've really seen that surge. And, you know, it's it's helped people out like um, Stephen Colbert. You know, he's at the top of the ratings now, whereas he was not um, when he first took over the uh, the late show. But I also think you obviously, you know, things on the other end of the spectrum going uh, viral Um you know, Jimmy Fallon has, has done really well with the viral stuff for years now um, that really doesn't have a kind of political edge to it. So I think um, there are two different approaches to, to kind of breaking out like that.
0: Well, let's uh, step back just a moment and look at the culture uh, in a larger sense. I mean, if you add up all these viral moments or moments that have the tendency to go viral from the late night uh, stew, if you will, what seems to work and what doesn't and i wonder what that tells us about what we find funny what what it says about us in a sense
1: um it's a good question because it's i'm i'm even trying to think is it stuff that we find funny all the time because you know as i was saying it seems to be two different kind of things in the world of late night b- very broadly speaking go go viral one would be really politically hard-hitting stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, sometimes you'll see something that John Oliver has done, some deep-dive investigation of, you know, um, campaign finance laws or something that seems very wonky um, and possibly even boring, but it'll get, you know, millions and millions of views within a few days of its release. And then on the other hand, you might have something like Jimmy Fallon doing the history of hip hop dancing or doing one of his things with the roots where they play classroom instruments of a popular, whatever the big song is of the moment. And that'll Mm -hmm. do Mm -hmm. even better. So I think that the main takeaway is that late night has grown and expanded and there's really something for everyone. And there is an audience there to consume it, (laughs) whatever the niche is.
0: I think a lot of people, a lot of viewers, you know, looking back, see a certain kind of a mean streak. I mean, you know, hosts were unabashed in kind of taking pot shots at each other, certainly during the, you know, days of the post-Carson rivalry. How much has just changed in the course of, what, 20 years or something? I mean, in terms of, yeah. of, of that relationship, right?
1: Uh, yeah, and I would say that it's really changed... Even mostly within the sort of last five to ten years, there was a lot of stuff recirculating. Um, there were some interview. There was an interview that David Letterman did with Lindsay Lohan, which was a little kind of cringe-inducing. I think what you had sort of in the the Letterman Leno era not only was very well-known animosity between the two of those those two men. They mm-hmm. famously disliked each other and and were you know in this heated battle for the ratings for for more than 20 years. And that has changed significantly. You'll often see John Oliver going on Seth Meyers' show. You know, there's this kind of cross-pollination among the shows now. They're happy to kind of go on each other's programs and talk. The rivalry is not as pitched one-on-one the same way it used to be. And, And I also just think the kind of culture has changed. I think the writers' rooms on these shows are much more diverse than they used to be. Still not as diverse as they need to be, but I think that has changed. You know, if you look back at, at Leno, there was a study at the end of his reign on NBC that said that um, it, it tallied the, his monologue jokes, and the most, the people he joked about the most were Bill Clinton, O.J. Simpson, and I believe Monica Lewinsky. So that gives you an idea of kind of the content of his show. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I really think that has, has changed quite a bit.
0: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, it isn't just your business. It's your life. Whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's where State Farm Small Business Insurance comes in. See, State Farm agents are small business owners, too. They know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor... State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Tell us a little bit more about what's been happening in the writers' rooms and how that can change the tone of some of these programs.
1: I think it's a huge factor, and obviously it's a little harder to... To actually see it, (laughs) you have to watch the end of the episode and look at the names in the credits. But I think it's made a huge difference. I think uh, as, you know, a little more than a decade ago, you know, when Letterman and Leno were in kind of the final years of their um, runs, you had maybe one woman in any of these writers' rooms. You know, it was not uncommon to have zero. And it was just kind of accepted as how things worked. You know, comedy was a boys' club and that's just how it was. Now, you, I, you know, I have written about this before. You pretty much don't have any shows that don't have any women. That doesn't mean, you know, even on Samantha Bee's show, you don't have a majority of women writers in the room. Um, but it has shifted a whole lot. Um, it's also shifted in terms of, you know, race and ethnicity in the room. Um, and I, I think that there's just the conversation around diversity has been so um, strong and important in the last couple of years in the industry that you just can't really get away with that anymore.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Of course, we also have um, uh, some changes uh, among the hosts. Uh, Daily show veteran Samantha Bee's Full Frontal uh, on TBS. You talked about that. Uh, YouTube star Lily Singh, who fronts a little late on NBC. Uh, Amber Ruffin just started on Peacock and uh, got a short run on NBC, too. How has the public responded uh, to some of these new uh, voices?
1: I think there's a, a lot of excitement around these women. You know, the, the shows that they're taking over or, or starting, I should say, are not necessarily as well known as The Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. So, you know, their, their platform is maybe not as big or perceived to be as prestigious as something like The Tonight Show. It's not this kind of marquee brand in television in the same way. But I think that there's, you know, they have, again, uh, smaller but devoted audiences.
0: You know, you think back in the history of late night, and I can think of one woman at the national network level who started to really take some chunks out of the big three, if you will. And that was Joan Rivers during her short stint uh, as a host. And it, it, like I say, it was short. It didn't last long. Why does it seem like women have not been able to get a foothold in late night? Is I? presume, of course, that's because of executive decision making. Uh, but I'm I'm wondering if you could say something about the structural issues that exist in the industry and the talent pipeline.
1: Sure. I will. I'll just say about the Joan Rivers thing. I think that to me is just one of the most fascinating episodes in late night history. It's, it's I think it says a lot about women, particularly women who are funny <laughs> for a living. You know, she was his permanent guest host. So, you know, when he would go on vacation, she took over The Tonight Show. When Johnny Carson had been on for 25 years and they anticipated that he would retire, there was an internal memo that listed her, his possible replacements and she wasn't on it. So she thought, well, you know, I'm going to start looking around and she took a job at Fox which was then a fledgling network and she was basically you know blacklisted she was treated as if she was this horrible traitor for getting an opportunity for herself so i just think it's a fascinating story and i think that Joan Rivers is the exception who was able to kind of make her way in what was really a, an old boys network of comedy as an institution and as sort of a scene is very insular it's very clubby you know there's a very established or there was for a long time kind of pipeline for an aspiring comedy writer, you might go to Harvard and work at the Lampoon like Conan O'Brien. You might then go work at the Simpsons or get a job in a late night room. And that was kind of how you did it. Maybe you'd go to Second City and take some improv classes, but there was a real established way of getting into the business and it didn't really account for women, for people of color, for people who didn't go to Ivy League universities.
0: But here's that, here's that through line, right? It seems like when it comes to women, at least in the host chair, there have been scrappier, sort of more experimental networks who are willing to take a chance, but even in in that case, not always for the long haul, right?
1: Yeah, 100%. You know, Joan Rivers was on for, I think, maybe two years, and then we had a long, long time without really very many women in late night. You know, we've had Samantha B. got her start on The Daily Show, and she's been on mm-hmm. um, TBS for four or five years now. Chelsea Handler was on E! for a little while. It, again, these are all sort of smaller networks that aren't necessarily known for their late night programming. So it's it's been kind of the sort of thing where women and people of color get an opportunity when it's a, a network trying to make a name for itself in late night, not necessarily an established network.
0: When you think about diversity uh, in, a, in that larger sense, where does the late night industry stand compared to the rest of, say, I don't know, ho- uh, Hollywood, or at least the industry as, as you see it?
1: That's a good question. I mean, in terms of hosts, particularly of kind of the legacy shows, it's bad. <laughs> I mean, it's behind, I would say, even sort of the, the the evening news, which is kind of another institution that has a similar mm-hmm. sort of cultural sway. You know, we, we had Katie Couric and we've had other female anchors of, of sort of the evening news. We still haven't had a female late night host on one of the big networks. I think writers' rooms are a little better, but they are, I think, also behind in a lot of ways.
0: You spoke recently with Molly McNerney, who's the co-head writer of Jimmy Kimmel Live, and she was sharing some interesting tactics for finding talent. Uh, can you share some of her methods?
1: Yeah, she was really interesting because she was telling me that, you know, part of the problem with hiring a diverse writing staff is that you just don't get applications from quite as many women, that there's just something about however the society works that women feel more reluctant to put themselves out there. So what she has done to recruit more diverse writers for Jimmy Kimmel Live is to just sort of reach out to people on social media that she thinks are funny. You know, if she sees somebody's joke, she'll reach out and say, hey, you should submit a packet because that's how people get jobs in these shows. They submit a, a writing sample to see if their their voice fits with the voice of the show and whether they're funny enough. So that's what she has done. And, you know, that's something I've heard from other people that you sort of have to work outside the system a little bit if you want to bring new talent in.
0: Don't wait for the applications to come to you. You go looking for that talent, yourself and
1: yeah the social exactly. media
0: pool is a great one to swim in for for to find talent too.
1: It is. I think I think one of the great things I mean social media is obviously a, a very complicated force in our lives these days but I think for comedy it's really kind of helped level the playing field a little bit. You know, we've seen quite a few great talented people emerge in the last couple of years because they just had a really funny Twitter account and now with TikTok, you know, people are really making their own kind of short form comedy content and finding audiences for it. And I think some of them are finding jobs in late night TV.
0: You know, I'm thinking about, though, late night uh, for all of its changes with the times. And there have been many, certainly if you compare today with 50 years ago. And yet it still kind of feels like a relic of the past. Do you have a sense of how late nights connecting with younger generations? Do they even think of it as kind of late night anymore?
1: I mean, I think the idea for most young people, the idea that you would sit down at 1135 and watch this thing for the next hour is bizarre, (laughs) if not completely foreign. I I think that people are certainly finding stuff online and sharing it. And I I think, you know, depending on the show and depending on the host and their own sensibility, they're also writing with those viewers in mind and, and trying to find them online and often creating content that is only shared online stuff that it doesn't air in the broadcast version of a show because they know that there's a whole different audience out there for that kind of stuff um, and that it's much younger than the broadcast audience
0: i guess i was saying you know as much as we talk about all the changes to late night it sounds like still late night is late night it is another thing it exists in its own orbit that is somehow still removed a bit from the online media world that Gen Z and and a lot of millennials consider to be home?
1: I think so, but I think they've also, you know, all of these shows have made a very concerted push to inhabit that spaces to the extent that they can, you know, they all have YouTube channels and have for years, they're all trying to figure out ways to monetize that and to find new viewers that way. I think a lot of it just comes down to whether what they're doing sparks with young people. And I think it really depends on the show (laughs) and who their guest is that night.
0: It's so interesting, because if you try to think about You know, what's the next step in the evolution of Late Night? It's so hard to say because, well, you know, it's a bit like a lot of people say that there will never again be another thriller album because the industry just isn't there to support it. You know, there might be some wonderful album out there, but it's sort of taking over everything. That's hard to imagine, especially in a media world like today. I wonder if the late-night wars are, are, you know, in a sense, a thing of the past, that we're not going to see that. There are are so many fewer obstacles to growth that uh, uh, that's sort of a bygone time, in a sense.
1: I think it is, in a sense, that there are so many more outlets that, you you know, we just don't have that kind of one-on-one battle of attrition that we saw between Letterman and Leno for so many years for, uh, you know, a, a small same-day audience that just doesn't work anymore you know because people can view when they want and and you know, watch on de- clips on demand the next day or a month later, it doesn't quite matter as much how many viewers you're getting at night. So I think it's opened up opportunities for people to kind of find it on their own terms. And, and it's given, you know, sort of smaller, m- maybe quirkier sensibilities and opportunity to to flourish. But it also does mean that, yeah, you don't have the equivalent of the Thriller album in Late Night <laughs> anymore, who I guess was, you know, Johnny Carson basically was it was the king.
0: Meredith Blake is an entertainment reporter at the Los Angeles Times. We've been talking about late night on television and beyond. Meredith, thanks so much for taking time to speak with us on Business Wars. It's great to say hello.
1: Ah, Thank you for having me.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can binge every episode of Business Wars ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. From Wondery, this is Episode 7 of Late Night Wars for Business Wars. I'm your host, David Brown. Lori Galleretta produced this episode. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Edited and produced by Emily Frost. Sound designed by Kyle Randall. Our associate producer is Kate Young, produced by Caitlin Plummer. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie. Created by Hernan Lopez for Wondery. Welcome to Pura, the most pristine, safe,
1: climate-stable city on Earth. A haven...